Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Brian couldn't make it this week, uh, but we have a special uh, returning guest and co-host this week, Keith Townsend. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's going to be great to get your insights here today as well. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about futures in the enterprise. Uh, our, our guest today is Chris Wolf, um, and recently new title. So hopefully, hopefully I get the title right here, Chris, VP and CTO, Global Field and Industry at VMware. Did I get it? Nailed it. All right, cool. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate the time to be on and spend some time with you guys. Absolutely. So, so let's just kick things off very, very quickly with, um, you know, it's probably been, I think it's a little over three years um, since you've gone over to, to VMware and kind of leaving the analyst slide uh, at Gartner. And so, first of all, tell us a little bit about that adjustment and, and, and maybe start off with what's been the biggest change coming from the analyst side over to the, you know, the, the evil, evil vendor side. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, let's see, I think the biggest change for me has been uh, the fact that, uh, and this is really what had drawn me uh, to uh, the, uh, the VMware opportunity, is that as an analyst, you can sit back and, and work with lots of end-user organizations and, and in turn work with vendors and, and make some recommendations, but that's that's where it stops. And at VMware, I, I can spot trends and, and work on things and, and and work with our uh, business units in terms of allocating uh, R&D resources to not just, you know, recommend changes, but to actually do things about it and to innovate. And, and that was really what had drawn me back into the vendor side was uh, really just a passion for innovation and, and, and wanting to you know, be a bit more involved. No, it makes, makes perfect sense. And, and so tell us a little bit, so when we talk about those trends and, and affecting that change, what are you seeing... In, in the industry uh, right now, and, and when you talk to customers specifically, what is on their mind and what's most interesting to the customers that are out there right now? Yeah, I, I think right now it's, uh, it's, it's been a bit, bit of a, there's so much going on, I think, is, is the, the issue, right? There's agility, uh, security, increasing efficiency. You know, at, at the high level, these are all things that, uh, that folks are worrying about. Uh, there's this notion that we, or recognition that we have to transition to be uh, more agile, to, to be more cloud-ready, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, in the you know, everyday run-of-the-mill IT organization, especially on the operations side, you, you have folks that are you know, concerned about all of this. And, and I think rightfully so. You, when, you, when we think about IT automation, people are concerned about, you know, how does this impact my job? I have a family to take care of. Uh, and I, I'd say, you know, that while as part of going through this transition, we have a responsibility to uh, ensure that the folks that have, you know, been a part of the IT organization uh, have a bright future. You know, and articulating what their career path looks like is is really important, and uh, you know how they can move forward. You know, that's um, you know a bit of a high level. I'm certainly happy to dig into some of the more specific technology trends, but uh, maybe that's a, a good place to start. Yeah. Well, yeah. I like to go ahead, Keith. Yeah, Chris, I'd like to ask you a little bit more. A deeper question on the people side of that equation and a little bit of of the business side as well how much pressure 
are your customers under to change? You know, in three years since you left, left Gartner, I think an awful lot has happened in enterprise IT much quicker than it has in, in the past. How much pressure are those ops folks under to change their uh, technologies and processes? Yeah, there it's uh, it's tremendous. And I mean, just as a benchmark, you guys, sir, Aaron had led with asking me about a difference from uh, leaving Gardner. I could tell you at VMware that the numbers of CXOs that I talked to in a given year is orders of magnitude higher uh, than uh, what I had talked to at Gardner. Uh, it's typically several hundred a year uh, that I'm either talking with on the phone or meeting with in person. And um, oftentimes at Gardner, I was working with their direct reports and certainly some of the CXOs too, but a lot of times it was their direct reports that I was uh, primarily interfacing with. And, uh, you know, these folks, the, the conversations that I've been having, uh, especially the last uh, 18 months or so, have been around a pressure to not just create efficiencies uh, within the existing IT organization, uh, but also to uh, launch adjacent businesses. So how can I you know, take some of the core knowledge that my business already has today and actually go in another direction and, and create a new revenue stream? And, and how can I leverage technology uh, to make some of those things happen? Uh, you know, there's the traditional uh, enterprises out there are you know, rightfully uh, uh, paranoid, I guess, might be the, maybe too strong of a word, maybe not, of you know everything that's out there and and unknown competitors coming around and, and they want to make sure that they have the right agility frameworks and mindsets in place so that they can be far more uh, you know reactive but also far more proactive in terms of innovating and uh, trying new things. So from a sanity check perspective, making sure that because you, you as you mentioned you've talked to hundreds of CXOs over the past couple of years or even over the past year, is it just my organization or my friends' organizations that are challenged with having these new business challenges thrusted upon us and not basically getting new budget, or is that uh, is new money coming with these new opportunities? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and that's the. I, I think sometimes that's the, the the crux of the issue is that you uh, sometimes you have a, an IT organization specifically, right, that might have a. Uh, inconsistent history of making uh, bets, uh, financial bets. Uh, and, you know, some things have worked out, some things have not. And now they're saying, you know, trust us on this uh, modernization journey. But at the same time, I think even at the CEO level, uh, under, there is a general understanding that you have to make strategic investments if you're, if you're going to be successful. You know, maybe I, I am cutting back on budget in other places, and, and for some organizations, it, it's, it goes as far as saying, you know, for this particular um, initiative, uh, may, it, it, you're answering simple questions. Does this make me more efficient? Does this make me more secure? Does this make me more agile? Is this part of a, a new strategic business? You know, if the answer to all of those questions is no, then you go back and say, well, why are we even spending money on this? And, you know, if the answer is because it's time to upgrade, right, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> that's that's a fantastic point and and uh, kind of to add to that um because this is i think maybe a subtle nuance of um you know keith and i have talked about this before of you know a, a difference in a conversation of you know like if you're if, if we're doing a briefing in front of customers knowing your audience kind of thing of when you're talking to the the director levels and the c levels how much of those conversations 
really is about a technology or technologies versus, you know, the, the business needs and how do you transform to the business needs? Um, because, you know, what in my experience, what happens is you get a lot of folks in the room and, and they try to attend. It's the same pitch, no matter the level. And so tell me a little bit about like kind of when you're talking to folks and how you talk about either the technology or the business transformation. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, some CIOs specifically are, are uh, pretty tech, technologically focused, right, while others are very business focused. Uh, so there's, to me, there's this balance that you have to strike because when I'm talking to somebody about transformation, I have to, you know, so, some of the, the themes that we were after are very well known, right? And, and the direction that we have to go at a high level is, you know, fairly obvious in, in, in some senses, uh, so what I try to do is to be a bit more precise and, and, and be specific in terms of recommendations that I'm making. Uh, so, for example, I had worked with a uh, energy uh, provider uh, last year, and I'm meeting with them again this year as well. And um, the conversation started with the fact that they were rolling out 15 million smart meters into homes and businesses and, and a portion of their grid. And they were asking me about management of the smart meters. Like, you know, we have all of these, they're running software now. We, we need to really rethink our approach to management. And we went down, we started down that path. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, in the, in the context of VMware, that's pretty easy. A lot of your smart devices are running some form of a mobile OS, all of which are supported by AirWatch. Uh, so we have a great story there in terms of how we can uh, bring all of those together. Uh, but that said, uh, this evolved into a, a more broader discussion, you know, really uh, uh, at the, both the interest of the CIO and CTO, where we were saying, you know what, it's not just a, a device you have to manage. If I have compute capacity in 15 million homes and businesses, that's actually an advantage that I don't get with, say, a smart device like an Amazon Echo uh, you know, or Google Home or you know, pick your device, right? Because people have to opt into that. You're... Uh, providing infrastructure or compute capacity at all of these places. And, and now that creates an opportunity to, uh, to, for you to actually have a platform uh, that can offer different uh, perhaps B2B services or uh, end-user services you know, that are localized right on a, a particular device in their home. Uh, so you know, to, to an energy company, those types of conversations are really important because they've been getting really beat up, uh, you know, and I'd say definitely for a good reason because of solar and solar energy is great. And I'm a huge proponent of it, but it, it's affected the rate at which they've been able to grow. Uh, so they're looking to not just embrace solar and become solar providers themselves, but uh, also uh, to, to look for new ways to, to grow their businesses and, uh, you know, being able to uh, also be a platform for new software services is something that's very interesting for those folks. Yeah, and it relates to, um, and we'll put links to the in the show notes to these. But you did two uh, blog articles back in, I want to say, the December timeframe, um, discussing what, what you had had, to, had coined the, the third industrial revolution, and that and this kind of industry fits into exactly that kind of scenario. So, um, so if you don't mind, tell everyone a little bit about what you mean by this uh, this concept of a third industrial revolution. Yeah, well, one thing I learned about it, which was, uh, I guess, sort of interesting, is there's a lot of debate over which industrial revolution we're even in. So I, <laughs> I thought well, this was the True. third. Some people are like, oh, no, it's the fourth now. And I'm like, well, all right, does it really matter? Um, so, so Another said, industrial revolution. 
Exactly. Uh, so, so that all said, I, I think what's what's was the crux of it is just the acknowledgement that we have so much happening in, in IT that we're we're able to innovate at a pace that we've never been able to see before. Especially when you start thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning, we're able to recognize patterns. We're able to analyze data, uh, and we're able to you know build new solutions around that data. Uh, at, at a pace that we've just never seen before in our history. So, you know, if we thought the last 10 years was significant, right, in terms of a technological jump, that's going to be nothing uh, compared to the next 10 years, just in terms of the pace of innovation that we're going to see. Uh, so to me, that's really a foundation for a new in, uh, uh, era of industrial revolution. And, and I, I think this is a time that the technology community, uh, we bear a lot of responsibility here uh, because – while all of this uh, uh, innovation is, is great, right, and is making lots of people's lives better, it's also uh, bringing in new waves of automation. And with that, that also means uh, we're simultaneously displacing jobs. Uh, and, and in my opinion, it's a, it's a moral imperative for the technology industry uh, to continue to heavily invest in education. Uh, you know, just like how people buy carbon offsets, uh, technology vendors, uh, and I, I'm going to put a blog up on this pretty soon, uh, should be doing the same thing in terms of uh, you know, education offsets or employment offsets. So if we're displacing jobs, we should be investing in uh, training for people to, to land in new places. I just think morally that's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, agreed. It's super, super interesting concept and certainly coming about, um, you know, with all the news here recently of manufacturing and automation jobs and, and we're in a very um, changing time, uh, you know, here in the United States, but really worldwide. I mean, it's a, it, at the end of the day, this is a global economy we're talking about. Um, now, what is, so we, we've talked a lot about kind of the, the big picture things. What's What's personally interesting to you you know as as we we talk to a lot of ctos we talk to a lot of vc folks and and we get a lot of kind of personal opinions and we always like to ask the 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 question of okay what's really really interesting to you and like when we had steve herod on the show he gave us really interesting views of how he still plays with a lot of the tech and so so what is what what's on your radar these days yeah i think a few things are let me uh i'll start with one i mean i also, like love to roll up my sleeves and, and continue to get my hands dirty. I mean, most of my uh, uh, holiday break uh, in December was uh, uh, just spent getting my Alexa to do some new things. And, and um, that also helped to, uh, uh, for me to, to, to continue to validate some, some concerns I have uh, with where technology is at, specifically in the IoT space. And... Um, this is where uh, we've seen a, a great opportunity for, for more VMware partnerships as well, because uh, you know in the blog post I had published last year, I was talking quite a bit about uh, uh, distributed compute and intelligence at the edge and, and, and why that matters. And it's a concept I've been on for, for quite some time now. I think about three years I've been writing and speaking about it. And uh, I think it was November or December that Peter Levine even uh, came out with a, a position on that as well, uh, agreeing with the fact that you know, intelligence at the edge is, is going to be a really big deal and a big market. And, uh, you know, when uh, my comment to some peers at the time was, well, I said, well, if I'm wrong, at least uh, I have good company in being wrong, so I'll take it. Um, but that all said, you know, we're seeing, uh, if you think about IoT and you think about like your home automation as a practical example, 
uh, you know, if I'm using some if this then that integration, for me to actually issue a command to Alexa and see a response, it might take three seconds, right? And that's that's an eternity if you think about just uh, you know technology today and and what I want from a user experience perspective. I know you know, Aaron, you you would you would certainly know that from your your time at Citrix. Yep. So, you know, if we uh, if we think about that, right, th- th- that means, and we think about the proliferation of devices. I, I can't be doing uh, IoT-based analytics uh, holistically or, or in, in nothing but clouds at scale because the latencies are just too great. And there's no amount of, I mean, there would be an infinite amount of networking that would be required today, at least, with today's technologies to solve that latency issue. Uh, so uh, what does that mean? It means that we can start to take advantage of uh, ensuring that we're still leveraging a lot of edge compute that can do some more high-powered analytics. And I think that's something that's uh, uh, that's an area that's really exciting to me. Uh, there are vendors uh, that uh, I have spoken with. Wouldn't be too hard to guess that uh, uh, are you know running their own uh, serverless and, and IoT serverless functions and uh, relevant to IoT. And uh, the, this latency challenge is something that's very real for them. And, and to you know, a vendor like VMware, uh, given what we do, it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity for, for partnerships with, uh, with a variety of uh, uh, different providers. Yeah, I've been uh, a disciple of edge computing for the past, I think, year plus. I've been writing an awful lot about that. And one of the biggest challenges that I'm seeing with this, and I hear, love to hear your feedback on on you know, the energy company was a great example. What are customers doing today with those edge challenges when they're, you know, the, the trend, if we listen to most analysts is to move out to the cloud, but we simply can't move to your point. We can't move that edge compute or the management of that edge compute out to the cloud. Solutions don't exist. What, how are customers addressing that? Or is that just a gap today? I'd say, by and large, it's uh, it's still a bit of a gap. Uh, you know, we are seeing uh, with some of the solutions that we've rolled out, like VMware Cloud on Amazon, as an example. Uh, we're we're seeing organizations uh, very interested in that technology uh, as a way to close some of their existing data centers. Is one of the early use cases. There's a lot more, and you know, happy to talk about that. But you know, at the same time. You know, there's there's lots of organizations where their edge compute is just it's never going to go away. They're going to need they need some at at various locations. Whether you're talking about an oil rig or a manufacturing plant or uh, thousands of retailers that have uh, compute localized compute in uh, you know pretty much every store or branch. And you know, there's uh, for reasons around credit card processing and reporting and other things, there there's not uh, much of an appetite to move all of that to the cloud. So uh, the, the, the other part of that, though, is uh, they're, they're seeing, they're, they're actually now saying, okay, well, if I have to have this here all the time, well, how can I even monetize some of the compute capacity that I have? Right? How can I maybe use some of this as a, as a new revenue stream for me? Uh, so I would say they're even thinking more broadly uh, about the, the, the challenge. But the other part of this, too, I think that's important here is there's great solutions, especially when you think about hyperconverge, that can really simplify edge compute. And, um, you know, as, for as fast as hyperconverge has taken off, I'd say it's still not fast enough because uh, we still sometimes in IT, we're our own worst enemy. When we're designing branch office solutions, as an example, we're still putting in these 
stacks that we're designing ourselves, which then puts the you know the onus on us to continue to maintain them, uh, which is uh, you know still you know a challenge and, and comes at a pretty high cost as well. Yeah, that that makes sense, and and so we'll we'll talk about let, let's talk about VMware a bit then. Um, where do you see? VMware's vision uh, taking the company both in the short and and long term. You you mentioned um, the HCI. You you've mentioned uh, you know the the agreement with AWS that was back in the I think November timeframe if I remember correctly a couple months ago now. Um, and, and we're kind of interweaving all of these things that you know. Let's be honest, it's it's above the hypervisor at this point. Um, and and so tell us a little bit about that that kind of broader vision of the company. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I think even if, like, if we start with the hypervisor and what we're still seeing, even in the cloud native spaces, programmatic compute network storage and security is not easy. You know, we can call that hypervisor space what we want, uh, but you know, we have lots of folks that uh, go down these container on metal projects uh, and eventually come back to VMware uh, because, Again, programmatic storage, programmatic networking, all the automation, all the isolation, management around all of that is a non-trivial task. And uh, that's also a reason why Amazon Web Services runs containers and Zen-based virtual machines. So there's uh, there's a lot of value in that part of the stack. And uh, what's been important to VMware strategically is to uh, you know, expose that value to all of our variety of partners in both the PaaS space and the container-as-a-service space uh, to ensure that, you know, this is an area where, where we have great expertise, where we can simply, uh, you know, lend that to their platforms and just make the developer experience easy, which is what people want. So, you know, if I want to be able to do containers as a service using native uh, Kubernetes APIs, I should be able to do that, and I should be able to make that infrastructure uh, just a checkbox. And, and that's been a big part of uh, our mission uh, in the core business has been uh, around doing those things. You know, Cloud Foundation lends itself to that. We mentioned Amazon, our partnership with uh, IBM, our, our uh, vCloud Air uh, uh, network partners as well uh, are all on that path. And I think that's uh, definitely important. And, and one way to think about this big picture-wise is this. There's certainly going to continue to be a lot of use cases where for a lot of services, I should be using the uh, provider-native platform services, using the provider APIs and just getting things done you know, really quickly. Azure has some great services, AWS Mobile Hub, great service, right? And lots of other services you get from Amazon as well. Uh, the the benefit to, to that approach is I get a lot of speed and uh, very high agility. Uh, the, the the challenge with that uh, those architectures is that in all likelihood, those applications or services will just live and die on the provider because it's just too cost prohibitive to, to go and pull that out and, and run it somewhere else. And, you know, to me, that's that's just pragmatic. And you could you should be able to go into provider relationships with that expectation and feel okay about it. Uh, but then there's another class of workloads that every enterprise has where they say, you know what, I want to have more control of my IP. I want to be able to dictate my maintenance schedule. I want to use the open source projects that I want to use and the versions that I want to use. I don't want that to be dictated to me uh, by a service provider. Right? I want to have full ownership of the app, the data, the APIs, and, and everything, the entire management ecosystem around it. And for those apps and services, and we think the VMware approach is, is terrific because we're using uh, uh, open source APIs uh, at the PaaS and container level in their native format, which is a preferred integration point for uh, most organizations today. Uh, and uh, we're able to we're we're giving you the flexibility to be able to run those things anywhere, 
using the same sets of processes and the same set of tools. And I think for the majority of applications enterprises have, they're going to really like uh, operating in that model. And, you know, best of all, if, say, our, our upstack integration is with uh, Cloud Foundry APIs or Kubernetes APIs, as a couple of examples, if you don't like your relationship with VMware, rip us out. You know, go with something else. And as long as your other solution is you know, true to the APIs as we are, then you're going to have that replacement. And, and that puts the pressure on us to continue to do you know, really good things for our customers uh, to keep them around. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. And, and I'll kind of move on to another. So you hear a lot about containers, obviously, everywhere. And we have for quite some time, but but another kind of even more cutting edge one is you've already mentioned it is is this serverless or function based computing. Um, will VMware be pursuing this technology as as kind of the next? I kind of think of it as technology horizons or technology waves, and and you know I almost see this as the next technology horizon post containers, and 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 how would other infrastructure products like, uh, you know, like NSX or, or vSAN fit into this picture because as you go, you know, more and more up the stack, if you will, from, you know, operating systems to containers to serverless, the infrastructure kind of goes away behind the scenes. And so what is your thoughts on how you integrate uh, things like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and, and something I've been uh, given a lot of thought to for quite a bit of time. And there's, uh, uh, for all the goodness that serverless is, and it's it's phenomenal. I mean, I can have my 13-year-old son write a function on our Echo and, uh, you know, do, do some cloud-based execution. I mean, that's that's awesome, right? I mean, very uh, simple model and, and great uh, time to value. Uh, and and especially in the IoT use cases, you know, there's other use cases too, don't get me wrong, and manufacturing and uh, financial sector is a couple of examples, uh, retail as well, uh, where it's going to be, you know, very prevalent, and, and it should be. Uh, the the uh, flip side to this, or where there's still some challenges with the technology in itself, is, you know, the, the goodness to a developer is the fact that serverless is a black box, right? And I don't have to care about what's happening in that box, but for a regulated enterprise, uh, that's a, a huge challenge that they have with it. Uh, I want to have an audit trail. I want to know where my data is at all times. I want to know where the compute processing is physically happening. Uh, I want to have uh, telemetry around uh, these uh, uh, function executions so that uh, you know I understand end to end and I can do more diagnostics, etc. Uh, and in those cases, we're I've talked with a uh, Several uh, organizations, many of them in the financial sector, uh, that have said we, 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 we have several use cases that would support private serverless uh, where we maintain full control. We want to be able to expose functions, but we want to be able to uh, fully govern it and, and, and certainly protect uh, the privacy of our data. Uh, you know, it's not to say that I can't do some of that with, with Lambda as well, because you can. Uh, but, again, this gets back to... Uh, organizations that not just want control, physical control of their assets, but they want control of the IP, uh, the maintenance schedule around it, uh, and, and, and things like that uh, for at least some of their functions. And that's a very uh, organic way to think about how VMware can add value uh, in that ecosystem. And, you know, what does that mean? You know, if we get into nuts and bolts, it, it effectively means that uh, the VMware stack has to natively support uh, uh, at least a common or several common uh, serverless uh, APIs uh, or serverless frameworks would probably be a better way to, to describe that. Uh, 
Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's one part of it. The other part of it, and this is what I had mentioned a bit earlier, is serverless function execution at uh, uh, moderate latencies is still not good enough from a user experience perspective. So if we can help with our technology to bring serverless function execution closer to the edge, uh, I think that's also uh, a great way that, uh, that VMware can add value. Yeah, and, and Keith, you've you've done kind of a lot of research and and talking about um, this kind of emerging trends as well. And is this does this vision kind of mirror what you're seeing as well? And what is your thoughts kind of around all of this? As well, not to get too futuristic and tying in <laughs> sure. the conversation that we that we've had is obviously as we go further down this edge and edge management challenge that we have. One of the, I think, natural desires we're going to have, you look at AWS's uh, Snowball Edge and those functions that come on on that. I, I couldn't imagine that enterprises not wanting that type of capability in-house as, as well. So to be able to put generic lightweight compute out at the edge and then run functions on that, I think is where I'm expecting companies like VMware to step up and say, you know what, we will help both the provider and the case of cloud providers and customers solve this problem. Chris, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on integrating serverless at the edge in um, uh, in the cloud and 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 the private data center and how VMware views that. Yeah, uh, we're uh, <laughs> like I said. This is something that uh, it's not a it's not a will. It's something where we've uh, given a lot of thought to. Uh, we've talked with uh, all of the major players in the uh, serverless space uh, and some of the up and comers there as well in terms of you know what uh, what uh, that future can look like. Uh, you know, first, uh, you know, one one way to think about serverless function execution is. Uh, consider all the compute capacity that's already at the edge. Uh, you know, a lot, some retailers just here in the U.S., they have 10,000, 12,000 stores with two servers in every one of them. Uh, those servers are busy maybe 15 hours a day, right, depending on the store. The other nine hours a day, they're pretty idle. They're not really doing much. They have lots of spare capacity that's just sitting there. Uh, so, you know, one option is actually to repurpose some of that capacity uh, and, um allow us to uh, 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 create a, a multi-tenant platform on some shared infrastructure uh, that would allow uh, that capacity to be used for, uh, say, data processing or, or whatever it may be. Another one where the VMware partnership makes a ton of sense is uh, with NSX. You know, NSX can micro-segment and do full isolation at a VMware container level today. Uh, there's uh, nothing uh, architecturally stopping us from being able to do micro-segmentation at the per-function level. Uh, and that's effectively meaning that you're, you're given the equivalent of a dedicated data center to every function that processes. Uh, that's a level of security uh, uh, that you just can't get any other way. And this is something that uh, uh, we can do in software. Uh, we can also do, uh, which, as we've demonstrated uh, at a, a few different conferences, and you can check out uh, Tom Korn's latest session at RSA, that's on YouTube, uh, you can see things we've been working on, like distributed network encryption, uh, which can then give you an end-to-end -end, uh, 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 encrypted tunnel between uh, you know any any endpoint you want, whether it's a, a, an application instance in the in the cloud or uh, an endpoint or, or what have you. Uh, we already have technology that can do data at rest encryption as well. So 
even you know in areas around privacy, uh, there's some uh, insecure insecurity. There's some very slick things that we can do there as well to add some value. Yeah, I think ultimately what I love to see, and I know this is again we're getting way off into just a, a futuristic discussion, is using a product like NXX to create that. Uh, that overlay within the data center and then carving out just a logical uh, hypervisor based enclave where I, where I can just give that part of the management off to a cloud provider or service provider to, to deliver my functionalist computing. And that's just a piece. I don't have to worry about it. You know, it's kind of a hosted uh, managed hosted date, virtual data center within my uh, dispersed network. But again, that's, super futuristic but geeky stuff to talk about is <laughs> one of the advantages of having a CTO on the on the podcast exactly exactly all right guys so we're we're about the time we probably need to start wrapping things up um so uh Keith where where can everyone find out more about you and everything you have going because uh, you've got quite a bit going these days yeah I got quite a bit going I'll actually be talking on a topic of serverless and this hybrid serverless model on edge computing at in Interop in May, so visit us at Interop. I know, uh, uh, at least I don't know if, Aaron, if you're going to be at Interop, but I know Brian is. Yeah, no, I can't make it this year, but Brian's going, absolutely. And just for my normal musings, you can uh, find me on the web, thectoadvisor.com, and on Twitter, at ctoadvisor. And and Chris, how about you? Where where can everyone find you these days? I found you know there's there's definitely more than one blog location, but uh, but where's the best way to get hold of you and find out what's going on? Yeah, probably uh, CS Wolf on Twitter is uh, uh, probably the best place. I'm on various VMware blogs. Uh, you can also hit me on uh, LinkedIn is uh, a good place as well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, VMware has me literally all over the map, so uh, maybe coming soon to uh, a city near you. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. All right, so on behalf of Brian, who couldn't make it this week, uh, Keith and Chris, thank you very much for your time this week, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll talk next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 